Today's episode is brought to you by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umpqua Bank and hosted by Suchin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. Today's guest, Ryan Holiday, will be in a second. His book is not out yet, but if you order it now, it counts toward his first week's release. And, I, and we'll talk about it a bunch during the podcast, but I can tell you it's excellent. Ego is the enemy, really worth your time. Order it now. It'll be delivered when it comes out. All right, podcast starting now. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. It's always great um, when I'm able to have somebody on the show uh, who's not just somebody whose work I, I dig, but somebody who's a friend. And um, over the past few years, Ryan Holiday and I have become friends in that very sort of 2016 way of... Uh, but but actually, we've uh, uh, spent real time in person, Ryan. Yeah. Which is uh, uh, different, I think, now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know if I was going to make it today because it's crazy flooding in Texas. And so they have this big thing in Texas where it says like, turn around, don't drown. So if it, there's flash flooding and you're on your way to the airport, you're supposed to turn around. But I didn't turn around. I made it. You proceeded. I, I kept well, in going. fact, I saw on Twitter when you said you were you were taking off or something, and I thought like, how how is Ryan going to get here? Yeah, by six o'clock. But you did yes. somehow. Uh, you got here on time. And so, Ryan, thanks uh, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, you are. I guess you first came to fame as a a person who distinguished himself in the world of marketing when you were the first head of marketing at American Apparel. Mm -hmm. At how old? I guess 21, 22. And you wrote a book about that call experience, which was called... Trust Me, I'm Lying. And that book became a bestseller and started you on the road to being someone who was like a motivational speaker and, you know, in the self-help space. Sure. But you and I met right uh, as your Stoicism book was coming out a couple, you know, a few years ago. And you said something to me then, you, you said that you are... Uh, consider yourself and that your goal is really to be a writer. And even though you've had marketing companies and book marketing businesses and uh, you're in demand as a speaker and people would sign up to take like an art of charm series of classes from you. Uh, I'm interested in the thought process, especially in 2016, in turning that stuff down and deciding to commit to being um, a writer. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I actually, so I started with writers, right? Uh, my my first boss was Tucker Max, and then I became a research assistant for Robert Greene, who wrote the Forty Laws of Power. So I was working as a writer, and it was only through Robert Greene, who happened to be on the board of American Apparel, that I sort of got this marketing stuff going. And so, in a weird way, like my career was like an interruption to what I always wanted to do, which was be a writer. And as as I sort of carved some of that that back. I've been able to focus more on the writing, but I haven't stopped doing the other stuff. Like I still have my business. I still do speaking. I still do all that other stuff. But like if I could do nothing but sit and write all day, I would do, I would do that. But I, I can't not just for financial reasons, but I would just be bored out of my mind. Like I, I, I love writing. What I say is like writing, uh, fulfills me, but it doesn't stimulate me enough. Like I have too much energy to just sit and write all day. So that's why I have all these other things. That's why you like going out and speaking. Yeah, I mean, I don't do that much speaking. So my my first book was like an expose of the media system. So it was all it was very much in the marketing thing. But like to the people that I'd been writing for online, that was like that was a surprise. They were like, "When are you going to write about this other stuff that you've been writing about this whole time?" So I'd always wanted to write the Stoicism book. Actually, 
think which I mean, is I mean, the obstacle is the way. Yeah, yeah. So that I, is a terrific book, a book that uh, I, I read right when it came out, and I, it's a, you were one of the first, I would say, important people to read that book, other than Tim Ferriss who read it and published it. But you were like one of the first people who I remember getting an email from and being like, "Well, this is not just like a normal person who liked my." my book, which was one of the things I was really worried about when I was writing it was like, you could write a book for a general audience and people are going to like it if it's good. But I feel like the, the test is like, do people that you respect who do real work, do, does it stand up to their standards? Well, what was interesting about the idea, I remember I tweeted at you first. I mean, we knew each other. We'd, we'd been maybe introduced virtually through Tim Ferriss. Yeah. But I remember that um, I was playing golf one day and I was playing really badly and I realized that if I could just process the way Epictetus might have, um, I would not get myself crazy and I could uh, find uh, something else. I could concentrate on all the things that, you know, the great way that you break it down in that book. I'd, I'd first come into um, Epictetus from Admiral James Stockdale. Yeah. And I remember when he got trashed in that debate in the early 90s, I guess, or late 80s. Go to the 90s, um, right? He was, Perot's vice, yeah. he was Ross yeah. Perot's vice presidential yeah. uh, candidate, 92. Who am I? What am I doing here? Yeah. yeah. And I remember then reading uh, Epictetus, but the way that you were able to, and I'm really interested in this because I didn't study philosophy in college, and the way that you were able to take uh, Seneca and Epictetus and, and present them to a modern audience and, and f- present those distinctions took philosophy out of the realm of mathematics and into the realm, again, of practical usage. I mean, how conscious were you of... Um, trying to, I mean, other people could gain us have done, but uh, how conscious are you of, of trying to do that? Uh, super conscious. So, so here's what happened. So I'd, I'd been writing about stoicism. I wrote a post for Tim Ferriss's website called like philosophy for entrepreneurs, where I was just talking about stoicism and I was probably 23 maybe. And so I always wanted to be a writer, but it's like, when do you become a writer? You know? Um, so I had this day job and I get an email from uh, a publisher in Austin and they were like, we really like this. We think this could be a book. And so they, it was not, it was not like a prestigious publisher or anything, but they, they were essentially offering me a book deal. And so this is what I'd sort of been waiting for. I remember I called Robert Greene and I sort of walked him through what happened and he was like, you're going to hate me for saying this, but I think you should pass on it. And you know, that's like the, the, what he was saying, basically what he said was every day you become a better writer. And more importantly, these are very heady themes for like a 23-year-old to be who's not who's done some stuff, but not as much stuff to write about. And so I ended up passing on it. But it was, I mean, there's like that was the moment. Like that was the thing that I wanted. And I had to I had to say no and th- hope that I would maybe get the opportunity again. So then I just didn't think about uh writing a book for like three or four years after that. Did you agree with Robert that you weren't ready to write that book yet? I agreed with it and I didn't agree with it. Like I, I agreed with it in the sense that um, I knew I, I would get better, but I also had gotten pretty good. Like I remember when I was thinking, because I dropped out of college, when I was thinking about dropping out of college, I talked to all these smart people. I didn't really want to do it, but they, they were like, you're being an idiot. You should definitely do it. Even when you dropped out to take the job. Yeah, yeah. And what, that was the American Apparel job? That was, no. When I was, that was, which job did you drop out to take? Uh, I worked at, uh, at a management agency in Beverly Hills. And I'd, I'd been there as an intern. They were like, what if you just didn't go back to school? And so uh, I was like, well, I'm definitely going to go back to school. That's crazy. And um, I remember I, was talk- I talked to Tucker about it. I talked to Robert Green. I talked to these other people about it. And they were like, look, you can always go back to school. This job is not always going to be offered to you. And so I, I remember very vividly thinking like, okay, I shouldn't, do, I shouldn't do this. Nobody thinks this is a good idea. And so when Robert 
even though every part of my body was telling me I should accept this deal, I was able to trust Robert, who I thought knew more than me. So I ended up passing on it. I didn't think about doing a book for like two or three years. And then what became Trust Me, I'm Lying, I felt like was not only a uh, a better entry point into publishing, uh, they paid me a bunch of money for it. And I knew that I knew that if I sold this book and it did well, I could write about whatever I wanted versus if I did this philosophy book and it didn't do well, that would be like my only shot. So the advice I always give people is calculate less, but it sounds like for you, it's worked to really calculate this stuff out. Like I've never calculated like one creative thing because I don't understand. Somehow- You just go with your gut or- Yeah. I mean, there was nothing rational about writing my first movie. When Dave and I wrote our first movie, there was nothing rational about that decision. Um, but it felt like something that um, we had to do, so we decided to invest the time. Sure. The the part that took that we did sort of think about was approaching it once we decided to do it with rigor and discipline and focus, right? So that we could do the best job that was possible um, on it. But in terms of like looking, studying the market, sure, seeing what was out there. We never would have written a poker spec script like at that 1997. Yeah. I, I don't think I was, I, I wasn't, and I'm not saying it's, I wasn't evaluating the market. It was more like, I didn't think I had to do that book. When I wrote Trust Me, I'm like, it was, I actually, I remember I wrote an article. I was like, this is not necessarily the book I want to write. It's the book I have to write. And so, because I, I, I couldn't not talk about it. Every conversation I had was about the themes in that book. Whereas I just wrote this article for this person's website and, and someone hadn't offered yet, right, me it hadn't a deal. Yet blossomed in you. But I'm not using, uh, I'm not using calculating when I'm talking to you or about you in a damning way because you produce really good work, right? So it's not as though when one reads one of your books, one sees calculation. What I'm interested in is how do you frame stuff as you're making these kinds of decisions. That's the thing that for me would be difficult, which sure. is how to dispassionately, like, so you're a kid, you always want to be a writer, you're offered a deal, you get advice from one really smart person, but what's the framework you use to step back and to sort of do a dispassionate analysis um, when it's about something that drives so many passions? Yeah, so so when I when I did sit down to write Obstacle, so I... I I remember the very moment that Mark Cerelius' meditation showed up, like from Amazon. At my, you know, I'd ordered Epictetus and I'd ordered Mark Cerelius like at the same time, and Mark Cerelius showed up, and I read it, and I just happened to, I bought the first translation I could on Amazon, and what came was like the most amazing, lyrical, beautiful book that I've like ever written, uh, read. Um, and Tyler Cowney calls them like quake books. So, so it was that, it was just, right? And so. I remember reading that, and then I read all the Stoics, and then I read all the books about the Stoics. And there was a very big difference between reading the Stoics and then the books about the Stoics, because at best, those books were just saying this, like, the best parts were when they were quoting the other better books, right? And then they were like, and here's why Seneca was saying this. And it's not that, that interesting. Right away, did you have that idea to add memoir and then people's memoir, basically to use modern stories to add Because, like, the great thing about Obstacle is you're using modern stories yeah. to animate these timeless themes and ideas. So I think for most of ancient, most of ancient philosophy is inscrutable and incomprehensible. So you need smart people to translate what it is that they're saying. But the Stoics are very straightforward and clear because they weren't writing for an audience, they're writing for themselves, right? So Marcus Aurelius isn't performing in his diaries like, hey, like you shouldn't do that anymore, right? And so if you're going to, what I realize is if you're going to write about the Stoics, if you're simply explaining what they meant, like parsing their words, it becomes 
only interesting to an academic audience. So if you want to write something that adds something new to this genre, you have to add value in some way. And so what I came up with is, why don't I illustrate what they're talking about with stories? Like, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take people who are either explicitly Stoic or acting like Stoics and, you, and connect that to the Stoic principles. So because I, here, here's the other thing I came up with is like, nobody wakes up and they're like, hey, I'd really like to learn some philosophy. They right. wake up and they go like, I have a problem and I would like a solution. And, and they may ha- wonder how Jay-Z have solved this problem in yeah. our modern life. It just happens that philosophy Which, so you'll is the use solution to that problem. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I'll, that's where I, I took those two things and I was like, this is something I could add and it wouldn't be presumptuous or pedantic for me to do that. And that was... Those were my two concerns with the existing literature is that I would either be like, who the hell is this kid writing this? Or it would be, why shouldn't I just read the originals? They're better. So I wanted to add something totally unique and special. Hey, we'll be right back with Ryan Holiday. First, a message from Open Account. How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions that someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umpqua Bank, host Su Chin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents' penny pinching, and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small businesses. And that's just the first three episodes. These conversations wind up being about way more than dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcasts. So download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money. And when an idea like this dawns, because writers always want to know, like, how do I know? I get this question a lot on Twitter. How do I know which of the things to write? So you said Quake Books, which is a great term for when um, you read something and it shakes your entire being. Often in, when we come up with the ideas that are worth spending time on, it feels like that. How do you, you know, it, um, for you, does it dawn all at once? Does it dawn over time? How do you arrive at, ah, this is it and this is the way and now I know this is how I'm going to tell the story. So when I was Robert's research assistant, he showed me, I was like, I know I, one of the reasons I want to work for him was that I had no idea how a book was created, right? And so he took me over to his house one day and he was like, these are all my note cards. He, he writes on these four by six note cards and he stores them in like shoe boxes um, that are, and they're all organized by theme. And so like 48 Laws of Power is like 2,000 note cards or something like that. So I started keeping these note cards, much less organized than him, but I would just write down things that I liked or whatever. And I was reading a book by Pierre Hadot, who's a French philosopher who liked the Stoics. And he was talking about this particular passage in Marcus Aurelius, um, the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way. And he said, this is, this is a Stoic exercise called turning obstacles upside down. And so I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I wrote, I folded the page. And when I went back through the book, I wrote that down. And, and then as I would read other things, I would see other examples of someone applying so it's like, that's the idea is turning obstacles upside down. And now it's like, you're sort of letting the confirmation bias work for you. Now, as I'm reading and doing other things, I'm like, oh, that's an example of that. And so I accumulated, I don't know, 20 note cards. And then when, after my first book came out, I was like, like people want stuff, like the publisher wants a second book for me. What am I going to do? Now is like my, now I, you know, that's the one for them, one for me thing. It's like, now I can bring 
if I'm going to do a stoicism book, what it's going to be about, I go through my note cards and I'm like, this is clearly there's something here. I've accumulated something that became the proposal, which sold. And then the book came out like two years later. And did you think, so you thought that was one for yourself. You didn't think, you didn't know that book was going to be the kind of success that it became. I mean, my, my publisher definitely didn't. When, when I sold my, because Penguin Portfolio is a business imprint of Penguin Random House. Or right. It was Penguin. They were not jumping up for joy when I was like, hey, I'd like to write a book about That's an obscure school of, of ancient philosophy. And like, I think they paid me less than half of what I got paid for my first book. But part of the nice part about having the marketing, my other life basically is that I was like, oh, you'll pay me more than $1? Like, I'll uh, take it. fine. Yeah. I want to be a writer. Yeah. I'm going to write uh, mm-hmm. and, and do that. I, I just want to turn to the, the, you know, you left college and, and often people who do wrestle with their intellectual bona fides. Do you wrestle with it ever? Did you as you were writing it? Um, I know you're someone who's always looked to mentors yeah. and you've always looked to very well-read mentors. I've, I've seen it in the yeah. way you interact with various people. Yeah. Is that a form of your own kind of curriculum or, I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm making up for some deficiency and, but I also just really love, it's like the only, it's like for me, that's like sports. Like, I mean, I like sports too, but I I just love it. Like it's my favorite thing to do. Reading and talking about books. Yeah, right, right. So, I certainly feel like I'm compensating a little bit and I catch myself, you know, like every once in a while I'll be like, why the fuck am I reading this? You know, Uh, like I don't, this is horrible. This, you know, so, but, but I would say generally I'm very pragmatic in what I'm reading. So it's, it's not status signaling. It's, it's, Hey, I don't know about this. Nobody taught me. And you know, my parent, my dad, my dad's a police officer. My mom's a school principal, but she worked with like a, uh, like adult education. So not, it was not a particularly, they're both smart, but it, it wasn't an intellectual household, right? So I feel like I'm just all this stuff that nobody ever told me about. Um, that's what I feel like I'm hungry for. Like one of my favorite writers is John Fonte. And it's like, I found out Ask the two dust. years ago, he lived in Roseville, which is the town that I grew up in. And nobody told me this. And, you know, Ambrose Spears is one of my other favorite writers. He lived in Auburn, which is, we went there every weekend. So it's like, I feel like it's like, holy crap, there's all this stuff. And I could have known it for a long time. And nobody told me about it. And I have to get as much I mean, in don't as feel I bad. Can. As you know, John Fonte, no one knew who the fuck he was in totally. his lifetime. Even. Yeah, of I mean, course. only after Bukowski, like, found him in the library. Yeah, did. sure. But nobody nobody in that town knows that he existed. It's crazy. Right. Well, so what was that? When did you realize you were different in some way from, or your interests were different in some way from your dad? Or did you have a distrust for a certain kind of academic? Like what, what was um, all that like? So I don't know. I don't know. I think like I was an okay student. Like not like when I dropped out of college, it wasn't like I dropped out of Harvard, right? Like I went, I went to the worst UC of in California. And so it was in some ways easier to do than it would have been if I was leaving like an Ivy League thing. You so, definitely have to go back and speak and say like, oh, I'm this is the worst. In, like, where, in two which weeks. Which was it? Uh, UC Riverside. Hey, Riverside people, you guys suck. That's what Ryan no, said. Really, I really the liked worst. it there. You're the worst. I, really, I actually really liked it there and it was horrible leaving. Like I felt so... I, I don't think, I think I you're the worst. College. It's Ryan thinks it. I want you to know, I think you guys are awesome busting your balls going to college um, maybe at a checkered high school but you're really smart i mean i know that but ryan holiday yeah on yeah. the other hand you're killing me uh they're all gonna come out to see you speak yeah yeah they're gonna come <laughs> no i'm sorry so but you're saying you weren't a great student i was like an okay were you like, curious then because you're yeah, so like, curious now it was like some of my teachers loved me and some of my teachers just hated me and thought i was like a problem 
you know, because you would call, you would what pick them up when they were unstuffed, when they were yeah. wrong, and yeah, oh. and I just didn't. It, it was like if they got me, I tried really hard, and if they didn't get me, I was like okay with B minus. You know, I, I was the exact same way. So I wish someone could have activated. Like I wish someone could have called me out, and like I feel like if someone had laid out what I was doing, I would have been able to be like, "You're right, that is what I'm doing." Do you have ADD? No, no. I'm saying like if they were like, you know, you don't try very oh, hard yeah. when you think like you're not going to be recognized for it, or when you think like you're not going to be supported. Like if they'd called me out, I would have been like, oh yeah, you're totally right. Well, sure. If you'd read the Stoics by then, you would have known what to do. Yeah, sure. If but, you'd incorporated, but that but, but I feel like I could have been objective enough about what I was doing. But no one, they were, they just, it was either they liked me and I really liked them, or they didn't like me and I didn't like them. That's how it felt. Were you reading stuff outside of school? Were you engaged and curious in that way? Or did that not surface until, or was ambition and work? It started towards like senior year. Like I definitely started, but it was not, it didn't really pick up. I remember I went, I broke up with my high school girlfriend, like the end of my freshman year of college. And I remember going to Borders because Borders still existed. And I bought like 10 books I'd been meaning to read. And I read all of them in like a week. And that would like, it's that, sort of been like that ever since. Right. I was going to say, cause you're so intellectually hungry. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, you send out a newsletter um, about your favorite books. And again, I know it's not, before you said it's not a status thing. I know it, it's clearly not a status. I've talked to you about books enough to know yeah. they really matter to you. But, so was it this sudden dawning of like an intellectual, uh, some kind of hunger to understand yourself or the world? I think it was like, it was like, uh, hey, I'm going to read all those things that I've been meaning to read. And then you realize that that's like an endless list. Right, just you know, the beginning. It, yeah, you don't ever get caught up. And so then you're just sucked. And then you're like, every time you read something, you're like, oh, there's like 10 other things that I don't know. There's that quote, um, I forget who, it's some physicist, but it's like, as your circle of knowledge grows, or as your island of knowledge grows, your circle of ignorance grows with it. It's, so it's like, the more you learn, you're like, I've never even heard of that. And so then you want to learn about that. And so that's what that is for me. But, but I would say like, my interests are still very pragmatic and that it's like, I mean, the Stokes are always talking about, it's like, you're learning how to live. I feel like that's what I'm reading about. I'm not reading esoteric, you know, whatever. I, I'm learning, I'm trying to, I still, I, there's some sense that I'm trying to make up for, like, nobody just showed me how stuff works. Well, it's interesting, like, you say you're not reading just, like, esoteric stuff, because, but, but I'm wondering if that's just about the way in which you've decided to classify stuff, because sure, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca are, na- today, considered it esoteric right it's certainly or they're certainly considered uh outside well, the mainstream all of philosophy is considered esoteric to most people yeah but like when you read them you're like oh wait you're saying this is about how to deal with your anger and how to deal with discipline and how to just be a good person that's what all this this is this is philosophy but it's exclusively practical philosophy why do you think philosophy is have you thought at all about why philosophy is taught the way that it is? Is it just because of the history of it? In other words, what, why do they break? And I don't know the answer, so I'm, yeah. I'm genuinely asking you. Um, because I understand using it as a, it's a, as a, a system of thought, which is yeah. the math piece of it. But it's almost like they're not using it for the value of the actual philosopher's opinions most sure. of the time. So one of the most compelling arguments I've heard, and this is not my uh, theory, but it's, it's essentially that it's a product of the university system when people have to specialize in things and they have to publish and create a certain amount of content around that thing. It becomes increasingly specialized and 
uh, you have to speak the language to know what they're talking about. So whereas you look at the Stoics, right? Um, there's Epictetus, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, but the other most prominent uh, Stoic is Cato, right? Who challenged Julius Caesar. He didn't write anything down, but he, you, the, the, the Stoics quote him all the time. These are, the, that's his philosophy in his actual life, right? Um, that's how he, he was a philosopher because of what he did as a human being in not just like, you know, at his, his monastery, but as a, as a pol- as one of the highest ranking politicians in, in the known world at that time. So he's a philosopher politician. And so when, when you see what the Stoics are doing, it's like, oh, this is instructions for life and for living. That's what they're doing here. And that's the kind of philosophy. That and is, I mean, is art, do you can, consider yourself um someone following in their traditions is that what your mission is i mean how do you distinguish your mission from uh just a traditional self-help model i mean where do you find yourself on yeah. the continuum of that stuff so i get the douche chills when i hear someone describe themselves as a philosopher yeah in in modern day and and if they were to refer to themselves as a stoic philosopher i would be like ugh Right, so I I never say that. I see myself as. I mean, the RZA can do it. If the sure. RZA wants to call himself a philosopher, sure. I mean, I'll sign off. Yeah, I'll co-sign. I mean, so I consider I consider myself a student of this philosophy, but I also reject huge parts of it. Right, like they believe in predetermination, which I don't really believe in, and they they invented all these things before our understanding of modern psychology, biology, evolution, all this stuff. But so I consider myself generally a student of this specific school of philosophy. And then I'm a writer, and a lot of my writing draws from that philosophy. So I don't. Con- I just consider myself a writer. Period. I don't consider myself a self help writer. Is part of that because in your books you're going on a search too. You're not just presenting us with the answers. You're. I mean, like uh, I know, or I, I believe that the ego book came out of questions you were asking yourself. The new book, which is ego is the enemy. Ego is the enemy. Yeah. Um, I think part of that started out with you trying to process this new place you found yourself in. Yeah. So, so Mark Surrealist's meditations, the actual translation, as far as I understand is like to himself, that's what it means. And so when he's using the second person, he's saying like, you shouldn't do that. He doesn't mean you, he means him. And so I, I think I picked that up when I started writing. And so when most, I use the second person a lot, but I'm mostly referring to me. And then if you happen to identify with that, then go for it, right? So, so there's nothing in my books that I'm not wrestling with myself. And it would be, even if I wasn't, it would be preposterously bad for me to pretend that I'm at, you know, in my late 20s, writing a book about having figured all this stuff out. It's like, no, this is what these people said. And this is, these are the strategies that I've tried to use in my life with some varying level of success. Sure. It's what people used to try to pick Tim up on, which yeah. is like, dude, you wrote the four hour work week, but you work 20 hours a day. Right. And the point is like, well, I'm talking about the path that I'm on. Yes. Also, that was a workaday job, and I'm trying to tell you to live the thing you want, and I'm doing it. And by the way, I'm not perfect, and I'm not saying I am. Right. So you're, you know, because you're an ambitious person. You're someone who's wants to continue to thrive and grow and be successful and all this stuff. And some of that pulls ag- and feeds your ego. Like we, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? I'm no, someone no. who wants my name on television all the time. Sure. So I understand it. Um, you know, I could have chosen to put my name all the way in the back of the show. It's right there at the front. I mean, I understand it. So how do you sort of like uh, think about this push-pull of 
in, in both these books, the, the idea is you, you, you should release yourself from this kind of desire yeah. and take other lessons from it. You clearly have these desires. So how do you, sure. how do you wrestle with that? How do you well, grapple with so, it? So I think it's part of what writing the book is, is it like, so you write a book about stoicism, you can't complain about anything afterwards, which has been nice, right? Like I realize now it's like, oh, I really sort of put my ass on the line there. You did, yeah. And the same, the same with ego, right? Like now I'm thinking, we had this big debate about the cover of ego. The publisher had this idea of they're like, what if we put the book out and it just had the title? It didn't have a name on it. And I remember, it, so it was like, uh, I liked, it was, on, it was weird. It was like, I liked it from a marketing standpoint, but I disliked it from an author standpoint because it's like, no, I wrote this. Like, I did this. Like, I'm signing my work. It's not an ego thing. I'm signing my work. And in a weird way, doing this sort of stunty marketing around it is is not the direction I, I mean, want to go. And it also just seems like a bad idea because you have a following. Yeah, I right. mean, Why shouldn't your audience know that this is your so, but so it's book. interesting because you end up wrestling with these things personally, creatively, and sort of philosophically. Philosophically, yeah, you're just like, okay, this is what I believe, and now I now I actually have to put this stuff into practice. And like, so like I see this with authors all the time. It's like authors, and even the authors that I work with, they're like, I want to be a New York Times bestseller. And you're like, why do you want to be a New York Times bestseller? And they don't actually have an answer. They just think that's what they need. It's vanity, basically. And so, like, when Obstacle came out, it was really interesting to see my book that got the least amount of attention sell the most amount of copies. And then I've had to carry that forward in the next book. It's like, oh, you know, actually the best marketing you do for the book is to write a book, is to pour everything into the book and write a book that people recommend to each other and that sort of thing. And so the, what, what's so great about the Stoics is that they're not talking about these things theoretically. They are talking about them practically because the, Marcus Aurelius is worshipped as a god in his own lifetime. He's the head of the most powerful army on earth. Like, there's this one... The, there's this one line where he says, like, uh, like congratulations, basically, for not raping your slaves. Like, this is what, you know, it's like, which sounds horrible, but then you're like, that would have been okay. Like, for him, like, in that time, that would have been legally allowed. And so he's not just saying, like, hey, you shouldn't do this, you know, like, from a historical standpoint. He's taught, he's he's actually living that against that dictum of, like, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, he's living that in his actual life, not abstractly. And so one of the nice parts about being, like, not being an academic but being a published author who's doing this stuff and then has my own business, it's like I'm actually having to deal with – I'm not writing about these ideas abstractly. I, I am challenged by them as well. I wonder if it's not just vanity that want, makes somebody want – to be on the list. Yeah. I wonder if it's a, a kind of an affirmation. In other words, it may be wrong. It, 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 it may be an outmoded affirmation, right? It may be a atavistic thing to think that that confers upon you um, uh, this idea that you weren't crazy. Because so many writers have sure. imposter syndrome or feel crazy or their parents still... May, so I, I think vanity is a thin... It's sort of like a thin way to look at it, perhaps. Maybe there's something... I'm trying to think, right, because sure. so many of us, so many writers are looking somehow for something to tell them you're not crazy. Sure. But I've been there, right? Because I want my books to do well, and I want them to be recognized. But there's a difference between that and, say, manipulating the list to get the, to get the empty shell of that thing uh, to, so you can become a speaker, you can do any number of these other things. Well, so now I know exactly what you're talking about. Sure, that's different. Right. So so you see you see people or people go like, 
uh, my goal is to sell 50,000 copies. And you're like, why? And they just realize, like, what does that number they mean? They heard someone else sold 49,000 copies. And right. so I think it's this idea of having to best everyone that is a very toxic idea. It's, I think uh, the art of writing is besting yourself, what you're individually capable of. Uh, that's what produces good work. So, okay, I, I wrote something down to ask you, and it's not something we've directly talked about before, but in a way, you know, your work is like um, really in reaction to the way most people raise their kids now. Yes. And um, think about what it means to be successful. You're talking about every internal kind of definition of success, which I, I think you're right. But can you talk uh, about the whole idea that self-esteem is crucial to success, uh, which is like this sort of idea that many of us have, uh, uh, you know, this, I mean, I remember the grit study and it really changed the way I thought about parenting when my kids were young. And I'm really glad that I read that and understood what to praise for and what not to praise for. But I also think it's a little uh, draconian and um, um, overly simplistic to say uh, an era where they didn't give a shit about the self-esteem of kids was better. So, I mean, how sure. do you think about the, the true, let's say the true value of self-esteem, what kind of self-esteem is worth chasing and protecting and safeguarding and what kinds of self-esteem are, um, a cause, uh, harm in the end because they're not. Well, so that was one of the things I struggled with a ton in the book. And it, when you talk to people about ego... In the new book. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. Most people will say, like, ego's bad. Like, they'll say, that person's an egomaniac. It's just all ego, whatever. But then they'll go like, but, you know, ego is critical to success. And what they really... What they're using ego as a synonym for confidence. Confidence is important. So I think the, I think the distinction you make is a distinction between ego, which is based on your own opinion of yourself, or, or which is based on what you want to be true. And you would say confidence is, is based on... Uh, evidence or results and right. so i think that's a if, tony robbins kind of a read on the thing a little bit right where probably, he yeah. Wa well yeah he talks about the difference of when you know you've put in the reps and the work and whatever yes. you can know you can run five miles because yesterday you ran five miles totally totally or you've been running one mile yeah you know and you've then been you one, built up and built there. up and built up it's, and a, it's a reasonable extrapolation of the 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 trajectory that you're on and so there's a uh, there's this quote from frank shamrock where he's saying like you know like confidence is earned ego is stolen basically and i think that's the problem and so you know you Wait, see, who's frank shamrock he was an an mma fighter. ken shamrock no Frank? Uh, Frank Shamrock was his brother who actually... Oh, I only knew Ken. That's why I only knew Ken. Yeah, yeah. And I, he, he beat the crap out of Ken like a bunch of times. Frank was better than Ken? Yeah. All yeah. right. Um, and so I think uh, the idea is, can you... can I, I love William Tecumseh Sherman. He's like one of my heroes. And there's this quote in the biography uh, of him by um, Liddell Hart. And he's talking about... He's like, some people, like a Napoleon believes they're destined for greatness. And so when they achieve greatness, it's empty and meaningless because it wasn't what they believed they were entitled for. And then there's someone like uh, Sherman who is, it's this sort of gradual ascent. And he's saying the, the fruits are so much sweeter because it's this iterative process and your, um, your, your belief is based on what you've actually done, not what you dreamed you would do. And he's saying one is sort of pose and the other is poise. And so I love that idea. Like I, and I've, I mean, you know, I was successful very early of people calling me a prod. You know, I heard these things and I saw other people around the same time, the same age as me, get those same labels. And I don't know where most of them are now. 
Do you know what I mean? And so what do you think enabled you to keep moving forward? Well, I was just very petrified of, of, uh, of losing. Like, I was very petrified of becoming a cliche. Uh, you have that line in Billions where he's saying, if people call you Superman long enough, you start to think you're Superman. I was very, I did not want to listen to or acknowledge the idea of like being a wonderkind or a prodigy or a, you know, an up and comer. I just wanted to be me and I didn't want you to know what age I, like I wanted my reputation to be based on the fact that I was just genuinely good at what I was doing. And so I always tried to focus on the actual work and uh, ignore all those other things. So I think with self-esteem, the problem is parents telling their kids what they giving their kids the credit that they have not yet earned right like giving them the praise for what they think they will be in the future which is very hard for a 16 year old to manage suitably because all of a sudden they're getting all this stuff and then when reality doesn't jibe with that that uh self-perception it's that's where you they don't get learn problem. how to take a punch because the punch feels so much worse in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or I mean, the idea, like even now, like it was easier for me to become a writer than it would have been for a previous generation because, like, there's the means of being a published writer are easier, but the status is somewhat the same. So, like, I was always worried about that, right? Like, it's like uh, I could write for Entrepreneur tomorrow, but. 25 years ago, that would have been impossible, right? And so that that difference allows people to give themselves credit for things that they haven't really earned. And I think that creates a little bit of ego and delusion. Yes. I think it's very tough. Yeah. So you, uh, you, you mentioned ego again. Um, yeah. And so let's talk about what made you... I remember before you started writing the book, you were wrestling with a couple of different ideas. Yes. And then finally... You said one day, like, you really knew you'd locked in on the idea yeah. for the book. Well, so that goes into the calculation thing. I set out to, I wanted to write a book about humility. So I would get these delusional emails from crazy people, basically, about how awesome they were. I would, just from fans, like, I'm just like you, or, you know, like, I'm going to do this. And I would never hear from these people. I would just get these horrible emails. Or, you talking, you know, you, or like, like, people would show, I mean, you, yeah. you said people would just show up at your house. Yeah, I, I would just, I was just not super pleased with, like, my fellow millennials, let's say. So I was thinking about writing a book about humility. And then as I was kicking that idea around, it was like, Wait, first off, writing a book about humility is really boring because you're just telling people to do this one thing, right? Like be this way. And it's hard, it's hard to be inspired by humility and for ambitious people who want to be successful. So it's kicking around, kicking around. And I realized what I was like, what, what prevents humility? Ego is the opposite of humility. And so ego is the enemy of humility. And so that's where the idea was like, okay, if I write the book about, all the things that are not humility and how 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 to sort of these factors that prevent it. That's a much more interesting book that allows me to tell both positive stories and cautionary tales. And that's where I sort of started to zero in on the book. But I mean, look, a big as I, I'd sold the book, and then over the next few months, I watched American Apparel implode and Dove Dove lost like five hundred million dollars of his own money. He was fired by his own board of directors. This was someone I'd looked up to. I, I wanted to be like him in some ways, not in other ways. But when you there's someone who you admire who who chose you and put time into you and made you believe in yourself. When they when they self destruct, you're like, wait, am I like them? Like, what you know, am I? Do I have that in me? Like, how did this happen? So it, a, a big part of the book came from my sort of anger and frustration and 
um, confusion about that whole time and then sort of bumped into some of my own issues around the same time. Well, so like it, 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 it's understandable, very clear how ego is the enemy to someone who's had the kind of success that you've had. How is ego the enemy to people still on their way? Right? It's easy to understand how when you've had success at a young age and people are calling you Wonderkin, how, how believing the hype can cause you to sort of to make the, the, what I would call the vanilla ice mistakes. Sure. And so um, that's understandable. And, and if Rob Van Winkle is listening, it, it's not personal to you, buddy. It's just uh, you know what happened in your career. But how does somebody who's younger, who's just starting out, who's taking steps – how do they process managing this question of ego? So in a weird way, I actually think ego is easier to get away with when you are successful because people need stuff from you. Oh, right? it's easier to get away with in like a professional yes. conduct. But it, it, it's worse personally. But it, so here, here's ego when you're on the rise is somewhat adaptive because it helps you. Uh, in the way that like a drug addiction might be because it just sort of numbs you from all the pain and and all the things that you're all, that you're going through sure. the stress and but when you are successful it's uh maladaptive but at the same time you can compensate for it because you're rich because you have people who work for you 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 have the best lawyer you have all these things but i would say ego is most toxic uh when you're on the rise or when you're starting or whatever and we just don't feel it because of the survivorship bias, right? We don't hear from all the people who were egotistical and accomplished nothing. We only hear from the successful people whose egos failed them. So right? what ways does ego... Well, the biggest thing is, like, so when I was Robert Greene's apprentice, if I thought I already knew everything, he couldn't have taught me everything, right? There's, a, there's an Epictetus line where he says that it's impossible to learn that which one thinks they already know. And so I remember when I started in, in, at the management agency, it was like, I was the kid who dropped out of college and all the other assistants were like Harvard MBAs, right? And so I was like just happy to be there and wanted to learn and do anything. And they were like, uh, I don't want to do this. Like, what is this? You know, like there, there's, if you, if you think, if you come into a thing entitled or you come into a thing convinced that you know everything that you need to do, or if your personal and emotional life is such a mess that you become a liability. I think those are all the way, like pride, uh, sort of personal chaos. I tend to think passion is is generally a a negative emotion. Like you see people like, oh, I'm so passionate. I'm I like want to shy away from those people because I know they're just going to be all. I'm going to be telling them to stop all the time. It's interesting. I draw a slightly different um, or a distinction, an additive distinction to that, which is passion without um, equally passionate curiosity is a problem. But, but I, I think because I think curiosity is the cure for so many of those. Learning things. is inherently humbling. Yes. So I think that makes sense. So it, it, I want. I'll say what I want is someone who's. If if passionate doesn't just mean someone who's passionate about themselves, sure, or just getting ahead. Yeah. But um, when I'm hiring somebody to come work as an assistant or come work as a writer's room yeah. assistant, I want like them to be really passionate about learning how to be great at you want them to this. love the thing you don't want them to be a bundle of energy I guess I'd say, yeah, you define the yeah. yeah you need to define passion the kind okay. of passion you don't like I, would, I'm, I'm more referring to the ancient sense of the passions right like the the sort of oh, zeal sure, being overtaken yeah i think so i make the distinction between passion and purpose you want someone with purpose i'm here to learn this i love this thing indefatigable purpose yes Yes. I'm saying what I'm... Energetic right? purpose, yes. Energetic purpose uh, and uh, a desire to learn, curiosity. Totally. 
that that is what you need but ego is the opposite of those things right ego is uh i i know all this already or i'm not here to make friends you know that sort of thing or the um the uh i'm going places you're all going to be working for me someday you know the the pr- the pride of superiority um those are that's in all the like the difference between the young people that have worked for me and bounced out and the people that i want to help get ahead it's usually that that sort of passion or humble purpose that makes you go this is this is someone who's helpful to me now and I want to set up with their own thing because then when we're equals, they're also going to be helpful to me and, and good. How do you balance that with people who allow the critical voice to stop them from taking steps? In other words, sure. there's, right, there is many people who feel unworthy or who feel that because they weren't born in a certain, you know, how do you balance the, those things? Yeah, there's that. That certainty of success and then that certainty of failure, you might argue, come from the same sort of self-absorption, right? It's oh, this idea, yes, you making know, it about the self, not about the work or the effort. Yeah, yeah. This, this idea of like, hey, if I do great stuff, it will work. I think you have to have some faith that if you pour all your energy into the work, the, that will pay off. And and you talked about the grit thing. That's what like the um you you have to believe that studying for a test and doing well on the test will be rewarded in some way. And if you don't, you can't succeed in school. You have to take some of these assumptions for granted, I would say. Well, that's the great study that's in Pope Bronson's book that um, uh, was based on that Carol, I forget that woman's name. Who Carol did, Dweck? Carol Dweck. Yeah. Um, where, you know, where they took the, the uh, two groups of kids and they took the exact same test and it was an easy test. And they told half the kids you did well because you were smart and they told half the right. kids you did well because of how hard you worked. And... As the tests got harder, the kids who were told they were smart, when they started doing less well on the test, they thought, I'm not really that smart, and they gave up and started doing worse, became worse students. And the students who were told, you did well because you worked hard, were able to keep working hard and to do better. And the groups were randomized. There weren't a set of smarter kids and a totally. set of harder working kids. I will say, I read that when one of my kids was in fourth grade and the other was like in nursery school. And it really, as it did, it was the thing that actually framed how I wanted to think about talking to them about what they did in, in there, school. There's a story I have in the book, and it's from Degas, and I won't even try to pronounce the other poet's name, but he, Degas was thinking about doing poetry. He's like, I have all these beautiful ideas uh, for poems. Like, I can't, and, and he says, like, poems are not made with ideas, they're made with words. And it, it's like, with work, basically. So I think the other part of it is, like, I have all these, ge- I have all these ideas, I have, I have 10 books I want to write. And then you're like, well, have you written any of them? You know, or they're like, I want to be a writer. How should I get started? And it's like, uh, right. There's Sarah Silverman was on Comedians in Cars, and she was like, you don't wait to get hired on something to write. You write until you get hired. And Writers people don't write. understand that. Yeah, the introduction to Stephen King's short story collection, uh, Night Shift, which is his first short story collection. Uh, he quotes. Uh, he talks about John D. McDonald, one of the great crime writers who ever lived. Tell a story about being at a party and meeting a doctor who said, I always wanted to write. And right. McDonald said, yeah, I always wanted to be a surgeon. Right. Like, you know, if you want to write, yeah. you write. It's by the way, that introduction is really, if you're a writer, everything Stephen King's ever written about writing is worth reading. Totally. And the introduction to uh, Night Shift is really worth uh, finding um, and, and reading. I want, I want to switch gears a, a little bit and talk, uh, talk about um, hustle. Because, uh, you know, even as we're sitting here, Ryan, you're a young guy. 
were you 28 or 29? So I turned 29 in a couple months. And somehow in this time, you've not only published these books and, and had the success, but your ability to connect people and to connect with people is really a distinct feature of who you are. You've had, like, as you rattle it off, you know, you worked for Dove, you worked for Robert Greene, you worked for Tucker, but you're also friends with and have worked with Ferris. You've uh, worked with Tony Robbins. You, you know, found a guy making shows in New York. Like, you're, yeah. you're, a, uh, have sort of, um, found yourself in a group of people who are all much older than you and uh, really accomplished in a series um, of, of ways. So how, now, is that something that can be taught? Is that just you were hardwired that way? Because, and I've noticed one of the things you do, and it's really a, a great thing, is um, when we first met, you know, you talk about the transactional nature of a lot of relationships now. You want to defeat that idea. You don't want it to feel that way. And you take pains to connect a bunch of these different people too and help and add value. Did you learn to do that? Like, is that something other people can model? Can people do that to you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, if I was being perfectly honest, a huge chunk of it has to be with just not super relating to my peers, right? So like, it just happened to be that like the people that I wanted to hang out with happened to be super successful. And then I kind of became a novelty among these people. So it's, it's somewhat non-replicable, right? Um, but I, I think it, like people are like, oh, how did you meet all these people? It's like, I met one of them and then they introduced me to another person and then I did a good job for that person. And then that, I find that if you're young and you do your stuff well, you're immediately a commodity that gets passed around. But also you do an interesting thing, which is, um, and I think it's something that can be replicated, which is you never asked me for a favor. You tried to add value to my life when you first came into my life. Like, I don't even remember that. Well, yeah, you were like, you might want to go on this guy's podcast. I don't work for him now. I used to. I know him. Hey, I could connect you with this writer, which might be like, it's it true. was an interesting sort of, and then it wasn't like the next day there was a favor asked. Um, it was like, you got out of it spending time with, it seems to me, taking myself out of it. Yeah. Excuse me. You got to spend time with interesting people, learn or talk to them or pick their brain. Yeah. And then in your own way of, of wanting to be worthy of it or to live up to it, you then were like, well, okay, not in, a ca not in a way that felt to me ever calculating, more just like, hey, I can do something that might benefit you. I want to help. And then like I say, there wasn't an ask on the sure. other side of it. I guess, so I remember I was, I, I had dinner with Tucker one time. We were with someone, I forget who it was. He was t we were talking about something and it, he was saying, you know what's interesting? You look at a company like Craigslist, how much value has Craigslist created for the world? It's like billions of dollars. And Craigslist annual revenues are like, I don't know, 100 million, 200 million. They capture deliberately a very small fraction. 98% of Craigslist is free, except for these couple things that like people have to pay for because... And nobody cares that those people have to pay for those things because they're not sympathetic to like, right. you know, real estate brokers yeah. or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. I think I've maybe kind of tried to apply. Like, it's like I can connect all these people. And then one of the times I'm going to be connecting someone and that person's going to be paying me. But it's it's not that it's not known like I'm hiding it, but it won't matter because. Oh, no, it's you declare. No, I try. But, you but declare. I'm saying, I'm saying like if I didn't, it wouldn't really matter because like. Uh, it's not any different than any of the times when I wasn't, right? And so I think yes. I think the idea is like, can you, 
I, I call this, I actually talk about it in the book, I call it sort of the canvas strategy. It's like, how can you give other people stuff that they can work with? And I think the only way you can do that is first accept that maybe they can do it better than you, right? So if you think you're the best and like, if I had my, like, I remember you were talking to me about doing a podcast and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm that good at them. I think I'm really busy. If I did it, I would immediately be competing with all these other people that right now I can do nice things for. And so I think it's about thinking like, hey, what am I best at? Only do that thing. And then can I be sort of generous and help all these other people in these other ways and then just keep my one little thing for myself? Like if you asked me to write something for you, I'd be like, here's what it costs, right? Right. Because that's what I do. But all the other stuff, it's like, you know. Yeah, and so how can someone who's like a college student, let's say, think about this idea of of adding value and not feel that it's, somehow only transactional or calculating or feel bad about themselves, right? Yeah. Because you don't feel bad about yourself for doing that stuff. No. And none of, I would say, I, I, I don't look at you in any way and think you're scamming. You're yeah. clearly not. It's like a long enough period of time, right? So how can people think about that for themselves? Um, so uh, what you're doing is you're looking for things that you can do that other people can't do. And I think one of the things that you realize about older people is that they are constantly scared of becoming irrelevant, even now myself, irrelevant, out of date, uh, you know, your skills are atrophying because you're so busy, you don't have time. So one of the things that young people are really good at is they have more energy and they have more patience and they generally have their finger on the pulse of things that accomplished people don't have the time. For. So I think that's your usually your main in. I remember with Tucker, it was, I forget what I emailed him about. We emailed about, like, I wrote an article about him. That was one thing. But it was like, there was something with his website that I noticed was, like, broken that I kind of knew about. And I was like, hey, can I do this for you? That's exactly what I'm asking. Right. Yeah. That's great. Not, and now most people would say, can I do this for you? And then will you pay me to do it? Or people go like, uh, I know how to do this. What I would like is for us to talk on the phone once a week for one hour and you to answer any question. Like, they, ha- they think it's like a, con- they think mentorship is this, like, contract. It's like, it'd be the equivalent of like going up to a woman in a bar and being like, I'm going to buy you this drink. And then you are like, we're going to be trading sexual favors for, you know, and that's repulsive. Right. And so it's, it's not a, uh, so how that's one of the main questions. It can't be pursued. So, okay. How do you decide when you are going to mentor some, what does someone do? And I'm not, by the way, I don't want people to now try to contact you, but how do you decide okay, this person has somehow distinguished themselves in a way that I'm going to give them some of my real time. I'm going to actually have the, whether it's a virtual cup of coffee or the cup of coffee, and then what do they do? So like I assume out of that, out of that number, and I'm doing this from yeah. personal experience, right? Um, 95% are going to now have the one interaction, yeah. and then that, that's it. You know, you'll be civil or whatever, answer the odd email, right. but they won't pass the test of this is someone sure. I'm going to look after. So well, you mentioned coffee. Neil Strauss is a great thing. He's like, Offering to buy someone a three dollar cup of coffee is not an attractive offer. It's like my time is the va- that the time is what you're asking for. So, um, you get a lot of emails. I've noticed that the ones that I end up reaching out, like, hey, I need someone to do this thing for me. Like, I'm trying to hire someone. I'm not like, hey, I'm hiring. That's like a horrible recipe. It's usually like I've got a couple people in my mind. Usually, those are people who have emailed me smart questions about things. So, I think the best way, and I might be biased, but it's like if. Usually asking a smart question is a great way to prove that you're a smart person, right? It can't be too transparent, but you're like, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. 
here's this very specific area that overlaps with your expertise. Can you help? Like, and it's like, oh, you know, you should read this book or, hey, here's this thing. And then they do and circle back to you. Over Not time. Not in an obnoxious yes. way. Over time. And it's like, I've almost forgotten who you were, but now I, oh, wait, we've talked, this name is familiar in my inbox, right? And then that that's how that works. I think that's how I would do it. I mean, the other way, I just read Robert Caro's series on Lyndon Johnson. Like, I read the all 3,000 pages. I was going to say, he does the note cards. So I almost brought him up before because yes. he does the note cards, too. Oh, he's like my hero. Yeah. Um, but he was talking, Lyndon Johnson was, uh, the people who hated Lyndon Johnson when he was uh, an up-and-comer would say, he's a professional son. That's what he would do. He would become a professional son, specifically to people who didn't have children or didn't have sons. And, I mean, obviously, that's he was a sociopath who was transparently manipulative. But... I think that what he's realizing is like he if you Lyndon Johnson would constantly call and ask people's advice for things that he already knew. He was always asking for advice or um one of the things he was famous for, he ran the little congress in Congress because it was an excuse to get speakers to come address the little conference, the little congress and he was the one who had got to interact with them. So he would use I think it's it's one, it's asking questions, and then two, it's using whatever acts, things you have at your disposal as a way to connect with people. So I use like a college newspaper. That's how I met Tucker and all these other people. It was like, oh, I'm going to write an article about them. Judd Apatow, he talked about it on your show. It's like he used this high school radio station to interview every comic that he ever looked up to. Uh, and, you know, 40 years later, it becomes a book. But that's what he he was using. There's that expression cast down your bucket where you are find what you've got and use that to as an end it's funny the equivalent of that now in many ways is the podcast totally people people it's funny if someone asks can i interview you can i take your time i want advice the moment they say i have a podcast it's like people take that much more serious i'm talking about people who are working in in the world like we we are but robert green it uh, always appeal to mercy or sorry always appeal to self-interest never mercy or gratitude a podcast is even if it's not at least has the trappings of being good for you, right? It's like, oh, I'm like, you know, people have set aside a certain amount of time for like promotional stuff, right? So like if I was starting and be like, oh, you know, I, I want to meet all these authors. Well, there's like a set period in their life every four or five years where they have a book out where they'll talk to anyone. That's your moment, right? And so I think the podcast is the same thing. It's like, instead of going, hey, will you give me an hour of your time for nothing? Yes. It's like, hey, can I interview you for I mean, I podcast? did it once here, Ethan Kanan. I mean, I just have always wanted to meet Ethan Kanan. He, I, I mean, I said it to him on the show. He's like been a favorite of mine since I was 18 or 19 years old. And I was like, wait, I have a show with an audience. I can meet Ethan Kanan now. Totally. And it was great. It took me about five minutes to get over the nervousness in the thing. But then he was awesome. And people it was it was a really great thing so yeah reaching out in these kinds of ways yeah totally can um work so um in just a sentence just to come back to the the new book um and you know i blurb the book and i i don't blurb authors even if they're my friends if i don't really dig their work and i i said i buy your books the day they come out and that's true in a in a, a, a sentence uh can you explain what the what the book is about yeah so obstacle was about all the external obstacles we face and ego is about the biggest internal obstacle, which would be our own, our own ego, the way we get in our own way and make the things that we want more difficult or impossible. So it's, I'm, I'm going past a sentence, but three, I, I say there's three stages in life. Six, uh, you're aspiring to something, you're successful at something, or you failed at something. I would say ego is the worst possible thing to interject into any of those three phases. Great. That's really well said. And, um, 
you know, you have this great ability to take uh, this complex stuff and present it in a way that's really engaging. You're a really engaging writer. And uh, so it's easy for me to recommend that people read this book. Um, well, that means a they, lot to me. And, and they should read Obstacle, too, if they, if they haven't read it. I think it's a great setup for, for this book. So go buy yourself uh, Ryan Holiday two-pack. Don't show up in Austin at his house and offer to buy him coffee because he can afford his own fucking coffee at this point. But if you want to email Ryan, you can reach him, or is it on Twitter? How do you want people uh, to find Twitter or my, my email is just my name at Gmail. All right, Ryan at, at Gmail. You can find me at uh, themomentbk at gmail.com. You can email me anything you want, except, I guess, an offer to buy me coffee. Don't do that. Don't buy me coffee. Offer, uh, offer to spend time with me or, or to, I don't know, ask me smart questions. I think you're right, by the way. You don't offer anything. To a me question other than is that. disarming. Just ask smart questions. Yeah. And then if you ask a smart enough question, I'll forward it to Ryan. And then Ryan, will, you can get to be in Ryan's life, too. Uh, one last thing. When I said uh, Alan Greganis before, it's, it's uh, Alain de Baton, actually. Greganis is also a good author, as is uh, Alan Lightman, who wrote the Einstein book. But um, uh, the one I was thinking of who wrote the, the book about Proust and then about philosophy in general is Alain de Baton. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Ryan Holiday, thanks for doing this. I'm glad that you got out of the uh, Texas flood. And now I'm going to go listen to Stevie Ray. There you go.